We're going to come again to the Word of God. We're turning in our Bibles back to 1 John chapter 2, please. And we're breaking into the chapter uh, where we left off last week. So breaking in at verse 18. And we'll read from 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, down to and including verse 23 tonight. 1 John chapter 2 and the verse 18. The Word of God says, Little children, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ, he is Antichrist, that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. Amen. We'll finish there at verse 23. Just a very, very quick recap. Last Thursday we finished off the previous section where John was dealing with warnings about the world system. And when we looked at it last week, we really looked just at uh, verse Uh, 17, the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And we we realize there that uh, while this world system uh, which operates is is powerful, that it's a declining system. It's a system which will pass away, a system which is passing away along with everything in that system that is not God-glorifying. But then as well as that, we noticed in that verse that while The system will pass away. While it's a declining system, there's an assurance for those of us who are in Christ that we have a definite future. Because it says, he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. We are those who will enter into that new heaven uh, that we read about over in Revelation chapter 21. But in the meantime, what was important for us to take out of this was this uh, statement that's found there about he that doeth the will of God. We should be seeking to be a people who do the will of God, who live our lives to bring glory and honor to the Lord. So just that's a very quick recap of where we finished off last week. We've moved on now into a new section uh, within John's epistle here. And this little section, we find something else that John highlights that we have to be warned about. There are warnings that we find here. These are things that we know, things that we know about but we are being warned about them as well. You'll recall whenever we were looking at the previous section that made reference to the phrase that's found here in verse 18, little children, and how on some occasions it's talking about those who are young in their faith, and on some occasions it's talking about the whole church, those who have been forgiven. In verse 12, for example, John says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. And that's speaking there about all of the redeemed. And here in this verse 18, uh, I believe it's the same uh, meaning or the same principle again. He's writing to all the believers, all those who are saved, who are hearing this letter being read, who are reading this letter. And John says, little children, it is the last time. He's writing to them. He's warning them. 
And as he says, it is the last time. He's not saying it's the last time he's writing to them, because it's not. He's telling them that it's the last days. That's really what the phrase is speaking about here. It's an indication of the age in which they're living, that they're living in the last days. Of course, if you were with us, if you tuned in, or if you followed along with the studies in the book of Daniel, as we looked at them last year, we spoke about the phrase, the latter days, and how Daniel uh, used that phrase. He, he used it when he spoke to Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2, whenever he was interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream about the great image, and he talked about the latter days. And this phrase here, when it's speaking about the last time, it's essentially speaking about that same time frame, that same period of time. John uses it twice in this verse. He uses it at the start of the verse. He uses it at the end of the verse. He says, little children, it is the last time. And then he says at the end of the verse, whereby we know that it is the last time. So the first time he uses it, he's stating the time in which they're in, that it's the last days. And then he uses it again to tell them how that they can know that it's the last days. Because he says, whereby we know that it is the last time. That word last that's found in that verse twice, it's the Greek word eschatos. And it's the same word that's used by the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 6. And when, in John chapter 6, whenever the Lord Jesus is speaking there, he's speaking about the last days. It's the same thing again. In fact, the theological study of the end times is known as eschatology. And that's where that word comes from. It's a theological study of the last things or the last days. And that's the word that's being used here. So John here, at the very outset, is reminding uh, the believers that they're in the last times or the last days. Those last days commenced with the work of Christ, with his return to his heavenly throne and in his, prepar- his preparatory work as he has gone to prepare a place for us. Whenever the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross and then he rose again from the dead and he's risen and he's at God's right hand. That is the start of the last days. In fact, Warren Wearsby uh, tells us this. He says, we're living now in that period of time when God is wrapping things up. It was the last days then because Christ had risen. Christ had finished his work. We're now in the church age. And during this whole period of the church age, until the Lord returns again, we're still in the last days. But in a sense, what John is saying here, as he's writing to these believers, if we look at it from a prophetic perspective, and I don't want to really get into the prophecy of it tonight, but there is a sense here that John is reminding them of the prophetic lateness of the hour. Because he makes reference to the fact that Antichrist shall come. Now he talks about Antichrist and then he talks about Antichrists. And there's differences there. There's a difference between the Antichrist and Antichrists. He talks about the fact that the Antichrist shall come. We thought about that again in our studies in Daniel chapter 7, if you remember that. And we thought there in Daniel 7 how it talked about the one who's called the little horn. Well, here he's referred to as the Antichrist. He's the one who will appear after the rapture. He will appear during the tribulation period. And he is, he is the, the Antichrist. John tells them here that he will come. The Antichrist shall come. It's the imperative tense. He's, he, he's in there as a future tense in the sense that he's coming. But it's speaking about an individual. It's not speaking about a collection of people. It's speaking about one individual. Antichrist shall come. But then John brings us on to our theme this evening because he says, even now, 
are there many antichrists? So he brings them back into their current time frame. And he says, even now, there are many antichrists. And we can say the same thing now. In this age in which we're living, which is the same age we're in those last days, even now, are there many antichrists? The word antichrist in and of itself simply means the adversary of the Messiah, one who's anti-Christ. It's very simple. He's the adversary of Christ. But it can mean uh, one who has set himself against Christ. It can mean who's one who sets himself in place of Christ. Both of those meanings can be valid. And when it's speaking about the Antichrist, he sets himself against Christ and he sets himself in place of Christ. And we read about that in the book of Revelation. We read about how he sets himself up as God. But the Antichrists, who are the Antichrists that John is speaking about here? Because what he's saying is that there are many Antichrists. There are many adversaries, those who are opposed to Christ. And it might surprise you who John's speaking about here whenever we read this passage. Because he's warning the believers as he's writing to them in his general epistle, he's warning them about false teachers. And there's some things that he tells them about the false teachers. Some things that he tells us about false teachers. And that's what we want to think about this evening. And there's three things that we can see about them as we look at this little section from verse 18 down to verse 23. The first one's very simple. We see it in verse 18. I've referred to it already. We see their description. Even now there are many antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time. Their description. They're antichrists. Now, remember that we're talking about warnings here. Whenever we looked at the warnings previously, remember in verse 15 down to verse 17 of this chapter, how John had said, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He goes on and talks about all that is in the world. Talks about the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. He was giving a warning there about lusts. But this time here, he's not talking about lusts. He's talking about lies. In fact, more directly than that, he's talking about liars. And we see that in verse 22 because he uses that word liar. He says, who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. The word liar is not a word that we would like labeled at us. Sure, it's not. We wouldn't like somebody to come along and tell us that we're a liar. It's not very pleasant. It's not a word that we would take kindly to if it's directed to us. The child of God should never find themselves in a position where that's labeled at them. Because we are to be a people who know the truth. We're to be a people who live the truth. We're to be a people who speak the truth. That's our responsibility as those who are seeking to live for the Lord. But you know, before John uses that phrase liars, he talks about antichrists. He calls them not just liars, but he calls them antichrists. And what a terrible title that is for anyone to have laid against them, that they are antichrist. And yet that's what they were. And that's what they are if we're truthful and faithful today. These are the things we have to be wary of. We're warned about those who set themselves against Christ, those who are antichrist. You know, there's an interesting point that we'll pick up in more detail in verse 19 about these false teachers. And it's something that we will understand whenever we come to look at verse 19. But it's important that first of all we understand that antichrists do exist today. 
and we're to be on our guard for them. Even now are there many antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Something that we need to grasp. And we need to grasp it very clearly in the days in which we're living because it's always been like this in the church age. There have always been antichrists. In fact, since the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as Messiah, there has been an intensification of opposition to him. And since the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the ascension of Christ... And and the fact that Christ is coming again, and and in the church age we have a message of the gospel, a message that we must proclaim, which is a message that the world doesn't like, and therefore there is continual opposition, which is intensifying against the gospel, against Christ, and against the people of God. One writer put it like this. He said, Christ's arrival aroused Satan's opposition to a level not seen before resulting in the rise of many antichrists. After three years of relentless hostility towards him, his enemies had finally nailed him to a cross. That same malignant antichrist spirit has continued to flourish to this day. And so it has and so it does. Over the past number of years, maybe the past 10, 12 years, I've had the opportunity on various different occasions to preach on specific subjects regarding a variety of false teachings that are infiltrating or seeking to infiltrate the church of Christ today and seeking to turn people away from the true gospel by offering an inferior message. And I touched on one of those themes last Tuesday night whenever we talked about dominion theology, this idea of, uh, and it's, it's becoming more and more evident, particularly uh, in, in certain areas in the United States, but it's coming across into Ireland as well. This theology that portrays the idea that Jesus needs us to create the environment in the world before he can return, that he has given over dominion to us, and that until there's a, a worldwide, the Christianization of the world, I suppose, is the, this theology. And it's, it's coming to the rise in the United States under a heading of Christian nationalism. This idea that the church can Christianize the nation or can Christianize the world. And only when we do that will Christ be able to return. And what that is is a false theology that diminishes Christ and elevates man. That's all it does. One of the proponents of that thinking is a man called Bill Johnson. Some of you will have heard of him, probably by me if not by anybody else, because I've mentioned him before. He's a so-called senior pastor of Bethel Church in Redding, California. And you can get your hands on one of Bill Johnson's books in Balamina today, because his books are sold in Christian bookshops. And I would say it's very easy to get your hands on one of his books. These are the sorts of things that Bill Johnson says. Speaking about the sovereignty of God, he said this, God is in charge, but he's not in control. When he comes, he comes at our invitation because he has released the dominion to us. That's utter heresy. Absolute rank heresy. Speaking about Jesus, he said this. He said, Jesus performed miracles, wonders and signs as a man in right relationship with God, not as God. If he performed miracles and he was God, then they would be unobtainable for us. But if he did them as a man, I'm responsible to pursue his lifestyle. Do you know what he's teaching there? He's teaching that Jesus was just a man with an anointing. That's all he was. He's diminishing Christ. Downplaying who the Lord Jesus Christ is. That's heresy. That's what it is. And that's why I will always tell you 
to mark and avoid anything by Bethel Church. And I include Bethel music in that. I include Jesus culture music in that because they're all of the same heresy, rejecting the Christ of the Bible and replacing him with a Jesus of their own imagination. And that's the sort of people that John is warning about here today. There's another one that does the rounds, the Word of Faith movement. This idea that we can name it and claim it. The names, Kenneth Copeland, Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, they all espouse this theology. It's a little God's theology. And I touched on this earlier on in, uh, I think, the opening verses of chapter 2, I, I referred to this. So I don't need to rehearse all of that again, what they believe. But the simple point is this, from verse 18. In the first century, the late first century, when John wrote this epistle, there were many antichrists. In the 21st century, we're now 1900 years later, more than 1900 years later, there are many antichrists. Those who are against Christ, those who seek to replace Christ with a Jesus of their own imagination, they reject him. And you might think that it's taken it a bit far to say that it's heresy and we should have nothing to do with that. But that's the reality of it. Some people say, well, we, do you know what? They might not agree with us on that, but we need to find ways to work together. Let me tell you the sort of thing that they say. I've referred to Bill Johnson. I'll give you Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Copeland said this. He says, when I read in the Bible, I am. Now, we know what I am means in the Bible when God speaks. He says, when I read in the Bible, I am, I smile and say, I am too. That's the heresy, putting himself on the same level as the God of heaven. There's to be no fellowship with these people. There's to be no coming together with these people, these people who declare themselves to be gods. It's patently anti-Christ. It's the spirit of anti-Christ that John is writing about in this verse. Do you know, as John was writing here, and he's warning believers about their presence, he says, even now, are there many antichrists? He's not saying they're still to come. He says they're here. Even now, are there many antichrists? He did give a word of comfort, because he said, whereby we know that it is the last time. He was reminding them of the great comfort of knowing that even in spite of their presence, and even in spite of what they might proclaim, and what they might teach, and what they might try to do, and be assured that these things are happening and will happen. He's saying it is the last time. Why is it the last time? Because Jesus is coming again. Because we're in that period of time where Jesus has said, I will come again and receive you unto myself. So we can take comfort even from those words. We know that it is the last time because we know that what we're looking for is not Antichrist. We're lifting our eyes and we're looking for the return of Christ himself. The Lord Jesus Christ. We see their description here, but I want you to see secondly in verse 19, their departure. So look at verse 19. It says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. So what's John speaking about here? Specifically, John is speaking about those who have made a claim of belief or who have implied that they have a belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they, they haven't. They're not his. He says they went out from us, but they were not of us. That word but's very important. But they were not of us. They were never believers. Never part of the church. 
And sometimes what happens, and in fact, it's quite often the case that uh, these people, they're brought up in the church. They brought up, they're brought up to, to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're brought up under the principles of what the Word of God teaches, but they don't accept it. They never accept the gospel of Christ. They don't accept the authority of the Word of God. And, and whether it's that they make a false profession, or whether it's, it's very simply that they rebel against the truth, these people have departed from the truth of the Word of God. And if they've departed from the truth of the Word of God, they've then departed from among the people of God. They were never of the church. Do you understand that? Joseph Smith, who was the founder of, of Mormonism, grew up in a local church, grew up under the, the teaching of the Word of God, grew up uh, and came into membership in his local church. Then he began to believe that the church was corrupt. He didn't like the people who were in leadership. Really, he wanted to be in leadership. So the next thing was that Joseph Smith claimed to have been visited by an angel who gave him golden tablets containing what is now known as the Book of Mormon. Joseph Smith grew up in the local church, but he went out from us because he was not of us, because he's Antichrist. He is an Antichrist. He, it was a false gospel. There's a man called Charles Templeton, a widely known evangelist in the United States of America, in fact, further afield than that in the 1940s. And he was a contemporary and friend of Billy Graham. In fact, he was, he was believed to be the better preacher of the two between himself and Billy Graham. Now, I'm not a big fan of Billy Graham. I just want to clarify that point now. I'm not a big fan of Billy Graham. But Charles Templeton and Billy Graham were contemporaries and friends. Templeton was believed to be the better preacher. But in the mid-1950s, Templeton apostatized, claimed that he was an agnostic, and as apostasy grew, it began because he began to, to doubt the sufficiency and the inerrancy of Scripture. And eventually he got to a point where he wrote a book which was well a bestseller. It sold greatly in the United States of America, particularly the book's entitled Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. A man who had a great testimony as far as people were concerned. Was seen as a great preacher as far as people were concerned. But he went out from us because he wasn't of us. At the time that John was writing this epistle, there was a philosopher who had begun to impact upon teaching in the, in the, in the local churches. His name was Serinthus. And Serinthus had this uh, thinking, he taught this, this, uh, this belief that Jesus was simply the natural son of Mary and Joseph. And he didn't become the Christ until his baptism. It's, a, it's an offshoot, really, of Gnosticism. And the Apostle John, as he was writing this letter, I'm quite sure that Serinthus was someone that he was aware of, someone that he was thinking about when he wrote about many antichrists. Because Serinthus was an antichrist. He rejected the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He rejected the virgin birth of Christ. And he rejected the perfect sinlessness of Christ. But he had come up through the church first. And then he rejected all those things. Serinthus, John certainly was aware of Serinthus because Polycarp tells, or recorded, and it's told that Polycarp recorded that on one occasion, I think it was in Ephesus, 
that the Apostle John was there as an older man, and he wanted to go into the public bathhouse, which is the, the way things would have been done in those days, and he heard that Serinthus was in the same public bathhouse, and the Apostle John refused to go in, and he said the reason why was because the heresy of Serinthus was so great that he feared for his own life to be in the same building as him. That was the thinking of the Apostle John about this Antichrist. You see, the big threat today in this regard for us, how does it apply to us? Well, it's the same today as it was then. We know that there's those outside the church who know nothing of the gospel, who hate the gospel, who rebel against the gospel because they see the impact that will have upon their sinful nature and their sinful desires. And even this past week, uh, on, the, on the news, and I, I've seen it picked up, not in our mainstream news here, but in the United States of America, that there has been a headline about this, that in the United States of America, there was a shooting in a nightclub. There was five people killed uh, in a nightclub. And one commentator on media in the United States made the point about this, said that the saddest thing about the death of the five people in the nightclub was that if they had rejected Christ as their saviour, they were now in hell. It's simply the gospel, isn't it? If they had rejected Christ as their saviour, they were now in hell. That particular commentator has faced, I don't know how they manage it, the vitriol, the hate, the uproar on social media towards them. Because the world hates the gospel. We know the world hates the gospel. We understand that. But the sad thing is, and what's just as sad about this, is that John's not speaking about the world out there. He's talking about those who went out from us but were not of us. He's talking about those who've grown up knowing the truth. Perhaps they've even made a profession of faith, but they've now repudiated that profession. They've now rejected what they've learned. And they've gone out into the world. They've gone after the world. They have their own philosophies on things, have their own teaching on things, and maybe they're now trying to come back into the church and infiltrate the church with heresy. He's not talking about backsliders here. These are people who have gone out, and John is clear, they were never of the church. They were never part of the family of God. I think it's important for young people to understand this. It's not enough to grow up in a church and go along with what's expected. Tick all of those boxes. That's not enough. No one is part of the universal church of Christ unless Christ is truly their savior. You're not part of the church if you're not saved. So just so there's no doubt here, John reaffirms this. He says, if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Now, you know, that second part of the verse, or that could be addressed to anybody who rejects the gospel. It could be directed towards anyone who has gone out and sought to fulfill their fleshly desires and fleshly lusts, because that is the spirit of Antichrist in and of itself. The word antichrist, as I said, it means against Christ. It can mean instead of Christ. So here's the thing. If a person puts their own desires above Christ, well, that's the spirit of antichrist. You understand that? If you put your desires above Christ, that's the spirit of antichrist at work. 
But the context of this passage, the context of this section is about false teachers. And and just to show something else about this, flick back in your Bible to Acts chapter 20, please. Just for a minute or two. Acts chapter 20 and the verse 28. And in Acts 20 and the verse 28 down to verse 31, the Apostle Paul is recorded here. This is what he says. He's speaking to the elders in Ephesus. And he's warning them about false teachers. He says in verse 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God with hath purchased with his own blood. So we have a responsibility. Elders, uh, pastor, teachers, we have a responsibility to take heed to ourselves and to take heed to all the flock uh, uh, over which we've been made overseers. We're to feed the church of God. That's the first thing that Paul comes out with there that he speaks about. But here's what he says then. Verse 29, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch. That's what Paul says. He speaks about false teachers coming in from without, and yes, that can happen. But there's a danger. Verse 30, of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. People who are looking to satisfy their own desires within the church, seeking to to have their own following, seeking to separate the flock. That's really what that's talking about. Somebody who wants to separate the flock and take people away after their own perverse teaching. That word perverse, those perverse things, that word perverse there, it's the Greek word diastrepho, and it literally means to distort or to twist. Teaching distorted things. Teaching twisted truth. Do you know why we have to be so much aware of these things today? One of the reasons, certainly anyway, why we have to be so much aware of these things is because in the world in which we live, we have access to all the information we want at our fingertips. If you've got a mobile phone, a smartphone at all, you can access all the false teaching. You can access all these things. It's very easy for people to be exposed to false theology. It's very easy for people to simply accept it because someone has a TV program or somebody has a flashy website or has a great podcast or whatever it might be and they have enough knowledge of the language and terminology of the Christian faith to sugarcoat their heresy. And that's what Paul was speaking about in verse 30. Those who arise from within speaking perverse things, twisted things, distorted things. They're distorting the truth. So what's the basic truth of 1 John 2 and 19? It says, those people, they were never truly saved. They were not of us. Charles Swindoll puts it like this. He says, The fact that these false teachers so drastically departed from the core teachings of the true faith demonstrates they were not really true fellow members of the body of Christ. Now, I think I've been fairly clear about what, Paul's, or what John is saying here, but let me reaffirm something here. This is not speaking about the doubting Christian. We all have doubts. And this is not speaking about those who have backslidden, those who have a a genuine faith and trust in Christ, but have have fallen, fallen back. They have backslidden. They have got caught up again, perhaps with besetting sin or whatever it might be. That's not speaking about them. We ought to pray for those people. 
We ought to be desiring to bring them back into that right walk with the Lord, seeking that the Lord will restore them. Seeking that even as the psalmist cried out, that they would come to the Lord and they would say, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. We should be praying for those people. We shouldn't write them off. This is speaking about those who have gone out. They're not of us. They're entertaining rank heresy. They're proclaiming it. They're distorting the truth. And they're leading people astray. Now we should pray for them too. And we should pray for them. We should pray that the Lord would open their eyes to the truth. We should pray that the Lord would convict them of their sin and of how they have twisted the truth of his gospel. But while they are still continuing in that path, we should have nothing to do with them. Because they're heretic. They went out from us but they were not of us. And we go on and we see this here. We see their description, we see their departure, but I want you to see here their denial. Look at verse 20, down to verse 23. And John, first of all, makes a statement. You have an unction from the Holy One and you know all things. Now he's not saying that every Christian knows everything about theology, because I can tell you now, from my perspective, that's wrong, because I don't. So, and we all know that, that's not what it means. The point that John is making here is that we have the word of God. We have an unction from the Holy One. We have the spirit of God and we have the revealed truth of God. That's what that means. But to move on here, there's, there's something that, that I think I need to say. There's, a, there's this great argument that many of these false teachers use today to seek to uh, confirm their heresy. They deny the sufficiency of Scripture. And they say this, they say, but God told me this. But God told me that. And they rely very heavily upon extra biblical revelation. Now I'm going to be as clear as I can, as plain as I can here. If what they say God told them doesn't line up with scripture, it wasn't God who was speaking to them. God told them nothing. It's as simple as that. I'm not saying that God can't lead those of us who are his children, who are indwelt by the Spirit. I believe that he can. And in Romans 8 and 14, we find that. But what God is not doing, and we see no evidence of it anywhere in Scripture, is God giving fresh revelation to people. Something new that's at odds with the Word of God. God can prompt us by his Spirit. God can speak to us by his Spirit. But whenever God speaks to his people, even in that still small voice that speaks to us in our hearts, God will always speak to us confirming from his word. That's how God speaks. Jude wrote about this just a few pages over. We'll not turn to it yet. But in Jude and in verse 3, he was scathing about false teachers. Here's what he said. He said, ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. The faith that was once delivered. Where do we find that for us? We find it in the word of God. It's not coming from anywhere else. It's not coming from what's in our own minds, our own imaginations. It's not coming from some other person who's saying, but God told me this. I remember listening to John MacArthur one time speaking on this. And he said about a man who came and told him this whole big story about what God had told him. And he started it off by saying, God told me. And John MacArthur very graciously stood and listened to him for two minutes. And then the man stopped and looked at him. And John MacArthur said, I'm sorry, you lost me. God told me. That's the reality of it. 
if it doesn't line up with scripture, it's not God who's speaking. John here speaks about, or Jude, sorry, in that passage in, in, in Jude verse 3, Jude spoke about those who denied God, who denied the Lord Jesus Christ. He called them ungodly men. And that's where we find it here. When we come here in 1 John chapter 2, we have truth revealed in verse 20. We know that what's been revealed to us is the word of God. It's been enlightened to us by the Holy Spirit and therefore we know the truth. We have it in front of us on the pages of Holy Scripture. And can I say, that's, this is why it's so important that the people of God are students of the word of God. See if you don't know your Bible. If you're not interested in knowing your Bible, if you're not interested in learning from your Bible, if you're not interested in understanding even the doctrines and the basic doctrines of Scripture and the basic teachings of Scripture, it's going to be very easy for someone to come along and deceive you with false theology and false teaching. We are supposed to be those who know what God has said in his word. We are supposed to be those who clearly can see that no lie is of the truth. That's what John says here in verse 21. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. What's the truth? It's the word of God. If it's contrary to the word of God, well, the word of God's truth. In fact, that's what we read in John 17 and 17. Sanctify them by thy truth. Thy word is truth. If it's not according to the word of God, it's not truth. Then it's a lie. And if it's a lie, where's it from? It's from the devil. He's the father of lies. And if it's from him, well, it's anti-God. And here's what it is. It's of the Antichrist spirit of the age. That's what John is saying here. So John goes on then in verse 22 and verse 23 of this. And he says, who is a liar? But he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. And then he goes on and talks about whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father. But he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. You see, one of the false teachings that was really... Uh, being brought to bear and, and, and used to attack the church was this Gnosticism idea that was rising. And we've talked about it already with Serinthus, this idea that Jesus was only a man. And he was a man in a right relationship with God. Well, isn't that what Bill Johnson said? When Jesus did his miracles, he was just a man in a right relationship with God. The heresy is still the same. The lies are still the same. The church should have nothing to do with anyone who desires to promote or to declare such a thing. What does it say here? The seriousness of this claim. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. So, why do people do these things? Why do they do what they do and say what they say? Why is it that people, for example, have gone out from the church of Jesus Christ, not of the church, and have this antichrist spirit. Well, it's very simple. The Bible tells us we're sinners. That's the sin nature. They're of their father, the devil. Jude tells us, flick over just a few pages to Jude. Just on over after 1, 2, and 3, John. Then you find Jude. And look at verse 11. Because Jude tells us here why they do these things. He says, woe unto them. Verse 11. For they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. So what have they done? They deny 
the deity of Christ. They deny or they undermine the, the, uh, the sacrificial work of Calvary. This idea that if we can be just like Jesus, if we can get ourselves into that right relationship with God, then we don't need to rely on Jesus. We don't need to rely on his work because we can be just like him. I'm going to tell you what that is. Jude already has told us. That's the way of Cain. What did Cain reject? Cain rejected the blood sacrifice. That's the way of Cain. Cain rejected the blood sacrifice and replaced it with the efforts of himself. It's the elevation of man and the relegation of God or the relegation of Christ. So we see that they elevate themselves. It's about pride. But then... Jude talks about they've ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. What are they doing? They're lining their pockets. That's what they're doing. That's really all that means. They're lining their profits. They're selling the truth, selling the gospel for personal gain. I mentioned earlier Bill Johnson from Bethel Church. Now, in Bethel Church in California, he doesn't take the title of apostle, but all of the other leadership, they all call him an apostle. And that's another nonsense, but it's another story too, and I don't have time tonight. But there's another senior leader in Bethel Church by the name of Chris Vallotton. And he wrote a book called Poverty, Riches, and Wealth. And he talks about, actually the subtitle of the book is this, Moving from a Life of Lack into True Kingdom Abundance. This idea that we can create the kingdom now and in this kingdom none of us will, be, will have any financial problems, none of us will have any health problems and all the rest of it. And here's what he says in this book. Now he's writing saying that this is according to scripture. He says, do you know that God wants you to be wealthy? It may be contrary to what we're usually taught in the church, but I believe that wealth is a sign of God's blessing in your life and it's how we're made to live as children of the living king. And now listen to this. This is what he says. Think about it. If your dad rules the world, then you're royalty on this earth and have access to everything he has access to. That's the theology that they're presenting. Meanwhile, on his own social media, he has photographs of himself up with his latest sports car worth 10 upon 10 upon tens of thousands of pounds and talking about the wealth that he has. Why he's got wealth is because you can go on and do courses with him online. Through, his, through this church in Bethel, it could be $100 to sign up for the course. Selling the gospel. It's not really the gospel. Selling their version of the gospel. Woe unto them. For they've gone in the way of Cain, ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward, and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. Now, we don't have time to look at this anymore, but remember what happened to Korah. We read about it over in Numbers chapter 16. They were those who rebelled against God, and they were subject to divine judgment as those who were apostate. That's what happens ultimately to those who treat the gospel as a product and who use it for their own ends. Jude tells us what they bring to the church in verse 12 and 13. If we allow them to infiltrate the church, as Jude's writing to believers here, here's what he says. These are spots or stains, literally, in your feasts of charity, 
when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Condemned. Condemned. We are warned by John to beware of antichrists. We are warned to know that they will be there. We're to mark them. We're to avoid them. Why? Because we don't follow antichrists. We follow Christ. We follow him. We obey his word. And that is all we need. We are those that acknowledge the Son. As John says in verse 23, He that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. We have what we need. We have it all in Christ. Let's rest in him. Amen.